Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're uh, new, it's great to have you worshiping with us here at Crosswinds Church. We are studying our way through the book of Genesis, and today we are on Genesis chapter 25. And Genesis chapter 25 is a unique chapter because it is a chapter with a seam right down the middle. It's like a chapter of two parts. The first part talks about the good ending on Abraham's life and his death. The, the second part talks about the tough beginning to Isaac and Rebekah's marriage. So if you like uh, those two-for-one deals, you know, buy one, get one free, that, this is your Sunday because there's two like, messages put together in one chapter. So we're going to just jump right in on this buy one, get one free uh, Sunday when it comes to messages. If you've been with us, you know that two um, weeks ago, we saw that Abraham's wife, Sarah, died. And it was sort of a bummer, you know, like, he's a single guy now, a 120-some-odd, 27-year-old single guy, but he's still a single guy. And the story picks up here in Genesis chapter 25, verses, we'll start with verse 1 in your outline. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, Shua, Jokshan, and, and Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letshumim, sorry, I was public school, um, Lumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. We find uh, that after Sarah dies, Abraham has enough time to get married and, as it were, raise a whole nother family. In fact, there's 48 more years of his life. And this, these little six verses actually raise a ton of questions. I'm just going to ask these questions, and we'll just sort of work our way through them. Like, number one, when did Abraham marry Keturah? Like, all of a sudden, bang, she's on the scene, in and off the scene in six verses. Did he marry her after Sarah died? Did he marry her before Sarah died? I'm going to tell you that the scholars are sort of divided on that one. They don't know exactly when he married Keturah. But what we do know is this. He had a hard time having children with Sarah, but after 127, he had, didn't have a hard time having children with Keturah at all. I'm like, go Abraham, you know. You know, he pops out six kids with Keturah. Now, um, Moses details some of these kids down to the second and even to the third generation. And I started to say to myself, like, Moses, why would you tell us not just about these kids, but some of these guys down to the second and third generation? What's the purpose of these details? Here's what you need to know. I'm not going to get into all the details, but I'll give you an overview. Moses wrote the book of Genesis originally for the Israelites when they came out of Egypt so they would know their 
history and their roots and where they came from. And as they're going into the promised land, they're finding all these different people groups and tribes and nations. And all of a sudden they're going, well, wait a minute here. I understand where these guys came from. These tribes and nations, they're actually also descendants of Abraham, but through a different wife, through Keturah. In fact, Moses, if you know, he marries a Midianite woman. We find that in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. So he also married a descendant of Abraham, not just was a descendant of Abraham, but through a different wife. So you see how this all sort of ties together and why he puts these, the details in there? Next question. Was Keturah a wife or was she a concubine? It's interesting because verse 1 says that um, she was a wife. If you look at verse 6, it says that he gave gifts to his concubines, plural, and then sent them away. So he has a more concubines that we don't know about? What's going on here? And once again, you're going to get a lot of discussion by the scholars on this. These are some of the mysteries of Scripture that God doesn't give us all the details on, but let me give you my take on it. And that's all it is, my take. Keturah is mentioned one other time in Scripture. That is 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32, for those of you who are taking notes. In that passage, she is called a concubine, not a wife. Now, what is a concubine in this time? A concubine is like a second-class wife. Uh, today, we call them, uh, a.k.a., girlfriends, like woman on the side. Uh, and she is part of the estate, but she doesn't own the estate with Abraham. Now, uh, Hagar would technically have been sort of a concubine because she was a slave woman that was taken as a wife. Keturah, as she's called in 1 Chronicles, would be a concubine, sort of part of the house, but not the actual wife of the house. So when it says he gave gifts to his concubines and sent them away, and the children of his concubines, that would be gifts to um, Hagar and Ishmael, ultimately, and Keturah and Keturah's kids, and sent them away. So when he died in his final moments, there were no rivals as to where his estate would go. It would go to Isaac without question because everyone else who were his kids from his concubines were sent away. The other thing you need to know, I did a little research. In verse 1 where it says wife, that Hebrew word has a, a flexible meaning. It could mean wife, it could mean female, it could mean woman. So you could translate this, Abraham took another woman. That's sort of the way it goes. But by the way, this answers, raises another question, which I've always felt was like it's a good time to answer this one. Like in the Old Testament, why do these guys have so many different wives? Anybody ever ask that one? Or like concubines, a.k.a. girlfriends on the side? Like what is going on? Well, let me just give you an answer to that one. Um... Number one, it begins in Genesis. God created Adam and how many women? Women. One. So God's plan is one man, one woman. One, one, excuse me, one woman. You know what I'm saying. You caught me on that one. 
Um, you, the first time you see polygamy that introduced into scriptures is Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. Remember when we studied this and we learned about Lamech? Lamech was a very wicked dude. And one of the, as part of his wickedness, he takes multiple wives. So it's like not a good thing. And what we find consistently in Scripture throughout the Old Testament is like these Old Testament guys are like, hey, in our culture, guys take multiple wives. I think this is going to be great. You know, if one wife is good, I'm going to take a bunch of them. And they think it's a really good idea. But if you look at the... the trajectory of their lives. Every time you sign guys that take multiple wives, it ends up in disaster, doesn't it? Don't just think about the moment, but think about where it ends up. Solomon, the wisest guy out there, has his heart led away from God by what? His multiple foreign wives. That's what the Scripture tells us. So you find is that Polygamy is introduced as not part of God's original plan. It's part of the culture of that day. It seems like God sort of accommodates it, but it's not really working out too well for guys who try this. By the time you get into the New Testament, God is sort of buttoned things down. And he's like, you know what? Christian men, my men are to be one women men. That is the way a good, godly man is defined. Christian leaders in the church are to be one women men. And guys go, oh, that's good. I, I only, it means I can only have been married once. Or that means I'm only married to one woman. Some guys will take it. I'm like, no, that's not what the Scripture says. A one woman man is a man who has a heart for only one woman. That means he, he's not looking on the internet at a bunch of other women. He's not, his heart is committed to one woman and one woman alone. Not just married to one woman and to one woman alone. That is God's plan. That we are one women men. Now Abraham, put this in context. He has been taken out of paganism. The guy has no Bible the scriptures that we have in front of us, he doesn't have any of that. doesn't have any Old Testament law. doesn't have anything. He is just the beginning of learning to walk with faith, by faith, and learning to know God, and learning to trust God. So God doesn't, like, take the dump truck and, like, put everything on top of him at once about his whole one-women-man thing. That's where he's at. He's in that part of the history of life. But why is this whole thing with Keturah included? Let me explain this to you. I wondered, why were these six verses even in here? Here's the answer. Genesis chapter 17, verse 4. God promised Abraham to make him a father of many nations, not just one nation. Isaac produces one nation, the Israelites. Where do the other nations come from? Keturah and her children. God kept his promise and made him a father of many nations. If you're filling out in, the, in your outlines, God kept his promise and made Abraham a father of many nations. He did exactly what he said he would. The story continues. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. An old man 
and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Now Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Beer Lahai Roy. Okay. There's a theme that's in this section. Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. God promised Abraham that he would live and die in a ripe old age. Did God keep his promise to Abraham? That's exactly the same thing. God kept his promise to Abraham. He lived to a ripe old age. Once again, same theme. And by the way, something else interesting right here. You notice he died, number one. He was gathered to his people, number two. And then he was buried. This phrase, gathered to his people, it's not the same as died. It's not the same as buried. This is the first time we see this in Scripture, but it is not the last time we see it in Scripture. What we find is that Abraham, when he dies, his spirit goes home to be with his, should we call it, ancestors or those who have tried to follow God before him. It doesn't give us a lot of details. In fact, I originally, in my original notes, was going to give you a lot of details about this. I'm going to skip over that. But here is the point. Abraham continued to live after death. In fact, Jesus reinforces that. In Matthew chapter 22, 31 through 32, it says this, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, <coughs> but of the living Jesus says, guess what? Abraham is alive after his death. So is Jake, Isaac and Jacob because these are present tense verbs. It's not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they are still alive. There is life after death. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm still fighting this cold. Let's continue. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, the names in the order of their birth. And by the way, I'm going to get these all wrong, so let's know that right up front. Nebioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Ab Adbeel, and Mibsam, and Mish. Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hada, Tima, Jeter, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and their encampments. Twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, by the way. 137, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. There you go again. They settled from Havilah to Shur which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. And he settled over against all of his kinsmen. God had promised that he'd, Abraham would be the father of many nations. They came through Keturah. 
God had promised Abraham that he would live to a ripe old age. He did. God had also promised Abraham that he would make Ishmael into a great nation. And guess what? We find in Abraham's death, God kept his promise once again. He had 12 sons, which turned into 12 tribes. And we know them today as the uh, Arabs. Can you say the Arabs? And we learned that Ishmael, back when he came on the scene, he was known as a wild donkey of a man, a man who would always be in opposition to his brothers and be fighting his brothers. And what do we find is characteristic of these tribes? They settled over against all their kinsmen. They were busy fighting against all their brothers. Now, need I say, all you need to do is turn on the news today and... We see what happened in the Bible is still happening today. What are they doing? Fighting against all of their kinsmen. It, it's got like gone on for like 2000 BC. You know, it's like it just keeps going. <coughs> it's exactly what the Bible says. In fact, what we find in this little section, the whole point of it is that God kept every single promise he made to Abraham. For nations, for age, everything is sort of buttoned up in these verses. God is a promise keeper. No matter how unlikely it may seem, no matter how impossible it may look, God will keep His word. The only promise that it appears God didn't keep was the promise to give Him the land. Remember that? You're going to go to the promised land. You're going to possess the promised land. And people are going, well, you didn't seem to do that in his lifetime. But here's what you need to do. Write this down if you're going to do this study. Go to Genesis chapter 15, verse 15. And you find that God promised him to give the land, not in his lifetime, but to give the land to his descendants in the fourth generation after his people had gone to a land that was not their own and they were mistreated there for 400 years, then they would return and get the land. That's Genesis 15. That is an exact, detailed description of what happens. To, because you end up with Joseph, they go to Egypt, they're in Egypt for 400 years. It says to the very day is when they come out of the land 400 years later. And they go back in and ultimately take it by under Joshua. See, God kept his word. Exactly what he said. He didn't stutter. He didn't mess up. Exactly what he said took place. God keeps his word no matter what the odds. And the third point there was God kept his promise as he made Ishmael into a great nation. End of sermon one. On to sermon two. The theme is, all of Abraham's descendants are having kids. And they are having kids like rabbits, all over the place having kids. Last week, Isaac finally gets his wife. He waited <laughs> till he was age 40. In that culture, guys usually got the, married at the age of 20. He waited until he was the age of 40 because he wouldn't marry a Canaanite woman. 
He was waiting for a godly girl until God provided the exact right one. And we saw last week all the providential ways God confirmed that Rebecca was the right woman for him. So he gets married to Rebecca, who was probably at least 20 years his junior, who is beautiful, who is strong, who is just oozing with femininity. And you can see in this huge household that is worth millions of dollars, everybody's excited. Finally, we're going to have kids because everybody else has them and you don't. And it comes to a screeching halt. Rebecca is barren. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Isaac fathered, or Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac, when, was, when he was 40 years old, took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Let's back up. Rebekah remained childless until Abraham was 60. We're going to see that in the next section. 20 years of infertility. Could you imagine the pressure on Rebekah? the woman who has been chosen, the woman that everyone's been waiting for, and everybody's expecting her to have kids, and she's just oozing with fertility, and you get nothing at all? It's like having a sports car in the driveway where the engine won't start. You know, like it doesn't do any good, right? Imagine the tension in their marriage when they're supposed to have kids. Imagine the, the times of questioning God. God, I thought you led me to this woman. I thought this was the right woman. But for now, it's 20 years and it doesn't seem like anything is happening with her. What are you doing? Thankfully, Isaac realized this is the exact same situation his father faced with his mother. Remember? Sarah was barren. Barren forever. Now, Abraham uh, took matters into his own hands in frustration. He went and grabbed a girlfriend on the side. Remember Hagar and Ishmael? Thankfully, Isaac learns from his dad. He does not grab a girlfriend on the side. He does not get a concubine. What it says he does is he devotes himself to prayer. Brotes himself to prayer for 20 years. And the Hebrew word for prayer here is not in occasional prayer. He gives himself to intense prayer for 20 years, asking God to remedy the situation, which I thought was really, really cool. How many of us would give ourselves to intense prayer in a situation that looked hopeless like this for 20 years, trusting God to come to the rescue? But the question comes to mind, like, God... Why was Rebecca barren? Why did you put them in a period of infertility for 20 years so that the first time they conceived a child was when Isaac was 60? Here's what I think. God intentionally put them in a trial, the trial of infertility. Because trials... God lets us go into trials, and sometimes even God sends trials because trials are intended to build our faith 
and trials are intended to grow our love for him. Isn't that true? Abraham ended up in the trial of infertility with Sarah, and it was what built his faith. When against all odds, when all hope was gone, and Sarah was even in menopause, she finally conceived. Remember the trial that Abraham faced of being called to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah? He obeyed God, and against all odds, God came to the rescue at the last minute, and Abraham's faith grew. Abraham's confidence in God matured. His love for God matured. I think what God does is he puts Isaac in a trial and he puts Rebecca in this trial of infertility because he loves them. It's a new generation. They have to have their faith matured. They have to go through hard times together and learn to rely on God. It's not going to be a money hard time. Isaac and Rebecca are filthy rich. Because they have Abraham's estate. So God puts them in a trial that money can't fix. A trial that only God can fix. Because he loves them. He wants to mature them. He wants to teach them to rely on him. And here's what I want you to know. That what happened in the Bible is happening still today. Some of you are here this morning and you are in a trial. God, why did you allow this into my life? This doesn't seem to make sense. If you are good, why would you allow this to happen? And some of you are in trials that money can't fix, that only God can fix. Maybe that trial is infertility, just like Isaac and Rebecca are facing. Maybe that trial is sickness that the doctors can't cure. Maybe that trial is a dependency on a substance that you just can't seem to break out of. Maybe that trial is depression and darkness, and they don't seem to be able to find the right meds to make a difference. It's a trial that money can't fix. It's a trial that only God can fix. But you know why He lets those trials into our lives? Not because He hates us, but because He loves you. And he wants you to rely on him and pray on him and grow towards him. Because if we don't ever have any trials, would we ever pray to God? Would we usually walk and talk to him? When life is easy, we're not on our knees. When life is hard, where do we find ourselves? Calling out to God and relying on God. And God uses trials to build our faith and to mature our faith. And to give us a story of God's incredible, great love and rescue. Look what James chapter 1 says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The route to maturity is through trials. That's why I think... Isaac and Rebecca in trials. That's why we go through trials. He loves us too much to give us a perpetually carefree life. Because if he did, we would be weak and useless in our faith. But the trials of life make us strong and passionate in our love for Christ. That's the point. God put trials in our life to grow our faith.
The story continues. <laughs> After 20 years, Rebecca conceives. And here's what happens. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And notice this. The older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Rebekah. The girl who had prayed and waited and hoped to conceive 20 years finally into this, finally does conceive, and she actually is sort of upset that she's finally pregnant. Now, you ladies who've had children understand this totally, much better than I do. I've only been married to a wife who's had three children. Uh, but you know how the, the kids can do the darndest things to your internal organs? Cindy, I remember she'd be walking down the hall sometime and all of a sudden just go, oh, what happens? Gut punch, you know, or in the middle of the night, oh, we used to do this. I used to tap on her belly, and all of a sudden, it'd be pushes back. And then in the middle of the night, this is more true with our boys than our girls, the baby would do this, right on an organ, usually a kidney or something, and Cindy would get up, oh, what are they doing inside my gut? And it was like, bounce up. Well, this is what's going on to Rebecca, but this is not ordinary. This is like MMA, martial arts, the octagon, the cage. These guys are beating the tar out of each other. It's like battle of the belly in utero. So all you guys who like that, this is what's going on in her gut. And she says, this is crazy. And literally, she says, man, I'm not even sure, sure I like being pregnant. I wanted this. No, I'm thinking this is a bad idea. So she goes to inquire of the Lord. And here's what she finds out. God does the ultrasound in the God way he does. You know, hey, you have two boys. The two boys are actually uh, fraternal twins, and you have two nations. And here's what I want you to know. The older will serve the younger. The order, the way things normally go, are going to get reversed. Note to self, that's very important. We're going to study it in a moment. Time for birth comes along. Out comes the first guy. He's all hairy. Looks just like Chewbacca off Star Wars. I mean, that's what he does. He's all hairy. And he's red. He's like red-haired guy comes out. And they're like, oh, so we'll call him Esau. Esau means hairy, by the way. So the hairy one. Isn't that a great name to call your kid? Hey, there's the hairy one, you know? Uh, his brother comes out. His name is Jacob. And Jacob, you know, he is literally grasping his brother's heel as if to say, you're not going to go first. Come back in here. I'm going out first. And so they call him Jacob, which means to grab or to clutch. And these boys are not just different in their birth order, but they're completely different in their looks. Esau is the hairy Chewbacca type. Uh, Jacob is completely smooth-skinned. 
Like he's the hairless type. Um, Esau is the guy that likes to <coughs> hunt. He likes to fish. He likes camo. He, he likes wild game. I mean, the guy is like Willie Robertson, you know, always outside doing something with duck calls. Well, Jacob's a little more sophisticated. He's the Betty Crocker type. Hangs out with mom in the kitchen. And he's the more sophisticated man. And mom and dad do something they should never do, which is called play favorites. By the way, mom and dad don't play favorites with one kid over the other. Uh, Jacob likes Esau because he brings home wild meat. Uh, Rebecca likes Jacob because he hangs out in the kitchen, as it were, with her. Now, what I want to do is I want to pause and look outside of Genesis because this little birth announcement about Jacob and Esau and their differences is talked about in other parts of Scripture as a very significant thing for us to understand about God and how He works. One of the most significant places is Romans chapter 9, 10 through 15. Follow along in your outlines with me. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were yet Though they were not yet born and had not done, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is called the doctrine of election. When we think about election, we think of Bernie, Hillary, Trump, and Cruz, right? And we get a vote to determine our future. When God talks about election, there's only one vote. He gets it. And there's no arguing with the way he votes. Here's what happens. God can choose to show mercy to whom he wants to show mercy, and God can choose to restrain mercy from who he wants to show mercy. Paul's point is before Jacob and Esau were even born, before they had done anything good or bad, God had said that I have already chosen that the older will serve the younger. In fact, God had said that Jacob is the one I'm going to love and Esau is the one I'm going to hate. Before they had done anything. Now some of you don't like that. Don't disagree with me. It's in your Bible. It's what the way God works. He is sovereign. Paul is writing about this in the context of God's saving grace. That God chooses to extend His saving grace through Jesus Christ to those He wants to have mercy to. Like for instance, if you are here this morning, it's because God has providentially worked in your life 
that you were brought into this fellowship the way he ordered your life so you could be here to hear this message this morning. He providentially worked in your life so you could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Some people haven't heard that yet because God hasn't extended that mercy to order their life to be here. And number two, the Bible says this, that when you are hearing the message of Jesus Christ, that you are naturally so dead in your sins that on your own, you will not choose Jesus. That on your own, you will not choose God. That God has to do a supernatural work in your heart to soften your heart that when you hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that you respond and want to accept Christ and make Him your Savior. Now, here's the question. Why does God do a supernatural work in some people's hearts so when they hear the gospel, they want to trust Christ? And other people, you can tell them the good news of Jesus Christ again and again and again. And it's like shooting a bullet off a rock. It just bounces off. Why? It's God's undeserved grace. Some people he chooses to extend grace to, and others he doesn't choose to extend grace to. And some of you say, well, that is not fair. And Paul answers that. God can do what he wants. He can show mercy to whom he wants. So the gospel is offered to all, but it's only effective to those whom God has softened their hearts so they can respond. And just like Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. I know that's a big concept, and some of you are struggling with that. But just put your finger in the text. Don't wrestle with me. Wrestle with Scripture. If there is a pattern, this is the pattern. God shows mercy to those who often are least deserving of it. If there is a pattern, that's the pattern. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 1. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose, you know God's choosing here? God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So no human being might boast in the presence of God. God typically chooses those who are least deserving of mercy to soften their heart to respond to His mercy. So, the point is this. God can choose to show mercy to some and not to others. Let's finish the story. Okay, God, you said the older will serve the younger. How does this actually take place? How do they flip? Here's the story. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Betty Cracker moment, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, Well, sell me your birthright right now. Esau said, Well, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. 
Thus Esau despised his birthright. Jacob's in the kitchen, you know, stirring the soup. It's a red lentil stew. Esau bursts in from the field. He's famished. And uh, it says it's a red lentil stew. And by the way, interestingly, uh, the word for red in Hebrew is Edom. And remember, Esau has red hair. So you have red hair and a red stew. Historically, Esau's descendants are called the Edomites, which means the red guys with red hair who made a really bad choice with red stew. So that's just a little bit of interesting trivia here. He says, give me some food. I am hungry. I'm famished. And Jacob sees the opportunity. He says, you know what? I'll give it to you as long as you sell me the birthright. What is the birthright? In this culture, the child that is born first has the birthright, which means you would get two-thirds of the inheritance. The second-born son would get one-thirds of the inheritance. Esau's estate is worth multiple millions of dollars. He's about ready to sell that right away. It also means that when your father dies, the one who has the birthright has charge of the family. It also means that the one who has the birthright will be the one through who God keeps his promises for the next generation. Esau says, you know what? I am so hungry, I will give it to you for just a bowl of soup. What a fool. Here's what you want to remember about Esau. Esau is a guy who has no long-term mindset. All he lives for is short-term pleasure. What can I get in the moment? In fact, if credit cards were around, you know Esau would max them out in a week. Esau is the guy who refuses to save for retirement. He doesn't think about the future. He doesn't care about the future. All he lives for is the moment. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 says this, Let no one... Uh, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright of something incredible value for a single meal. What Hebrews is saying is, you know how you're a young man or a young woman and you have your sexual appetite burning within you and you are with somebody that it's not the right time, you're not married, it's not the right place, but your appetite is demanding to be satisfied, your sexual appetite? Don't do an Esau and live for the moment. And lose your virginity. Or if you don't have your virginity, lose intimacies that are to be saved for your wedding night. Just so you can get short-term pleasure. And throw away all the long-term benefits of purity. Don't do an Esau. By the way, what a lot of people do is they think at this point, well, Esau is the bad guy. Jacob must be the good guy. They're both bad guys. Jacob is a trickster. Jacob is a cheater. We're going to see in two chapters later, I mean, he steals from his father. He lies to his father. Jacob is a really bad guy too. But why does God choose to love Jacob and not Esau? That's God's choice. They're both scoundrels. Now, this morning, as we close, I want you to understand this. If you love Jesus Christ, if your heart is soft to Him, it's only because 
of God's undeserved grace that has been extended into your life. It's not because you're smarter than others. It's not because you're quicker than others. It's not because you're better than others. But it's because God has simply chosen to be merciful to you. And in some, he hasn't chosen to be as merciful towards. God in his providence has allowed you to be in a place where you heard the good news of what God has done for you. Number two, God in his grace and his undeserved mercy softened your heart so when you heard the good news of Jesus Christ, you responded and placed your faith in him. So today, for every good thing that is in your life and for salvation itself, do not point any finger to yourself. Point it all to God because he is the one who gets all the glory. Because he brought you to hear about Jesus. And then he softened your heart towards Jesus because you were so dead in your sins you couldn't have responded to him if it wasn't for God's mercy in your life. Applications. Let me just run through these as we, as we finish. Number one, we learned that God always keeps his promise no matter how impossible. We saw that in Abraham's death. Number two, God puts trials in our life to grow our faith. We saw that with Isaac and Rebekah and their inability to conceive. Number three, God chooses to show mercy to some and not to others because he's God. He can do that. Just be thankful he's been shown mercy to us. And number four, don't be an Esau or don't do an Esau. Don't live for the pleasures of the moment and squander the treasures from God and life in the future. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this chapter. A lot in here, a lot of little pieces that stitch together, but a lot of good stuff that we need to hear. Most importantly, Jesus, we just want to thank you for your incredible mercy upon us so we would be able to hear the good news of Jesus and that you would draw us to respond to the good news of Jesus, an incredible grace and mercy we do not deserve. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.